Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Brad Briscoe. I'm the Director of Bivocational Church Planting for the North Mission Board. And today I'm with my good friend, Peyton Jones. And I think here in a few minutes, we're also going to be joined by another friend of both of ours, Brian Sanders. So uh, I think most of you probably know Peyton. Uh, Peyton's a, kind of a serial church planter. Uh, he and I worked together for a couple of years at the North American Mission Board. We've done some training together. Uh, also, um, Peyton's written several books, and really this webinar is about a book that was recently released just a couple of weeks ago uh, called Church Plantology, and it's subtitled The Art and Science of Church Planting. Yo, there, can you hear there's, me? Yep, there's Brian Sanders. Hey, Brian, glad, glad that you could join us. Um, so, hey, hey, hey. It's really good. I, I've been looking forward to this conversation with the with both of you. Uh, I know it's going to be a a robust conversation. So just to set it up just a little bit uh, for those of you that have joined us, um, really, this is the third of three webinars relating to Peyton's new book. And uh, the first one was really about kind of the intersection of church uh, scripture with church planting. One that we did a couple of weeks ago was really around church planting and history. And the one today, we're going to talk about practices, church planting practices. Uh, and I, I really, I think I want to frame that by saying global practices. So we kind of try to steer clear of best practices, because we all know sometimes when we talk best practices, it kind of takes us down a road of pragmatism. And I know we won't have any problem with that with uh, the two guys on today, Brian and, and Peyton, to really talk about practices from a different perspective. So, but before we get into that, uh, Peyton, just for those, especially for those maybe that haven't joined the first couple of webinars, give us just a little bit of background on this new book that you've written. Uh, just kind of curious, why, why did you write a book that's really a church planting, really more of a textbook? Can you just give us a little bit of background, kind of the motivation behind the, the creation of this resource? You know, it's kind of funny because it was a book I did not want to write, to be honest. Um, I was approached by Zonervan. You and I, Brad, and Jeff Christofferson, a few of our uh, training team over at NAM, we were locked in a room. And I remember we were revamping the training and we went radical. I mean, with the three of us in that room, it was starting to go more and more radical. And uh, Jeff was at the helm. And so we felt like, hey, this is going to happen. And um, Jeff left shortly afterwards. But I remember at that time thinking, man, if we could see, and you and I even talked and it was like, man, if we could see these changes, it would change the whole conversation. Well, I moved on, you know, as well shortly after not thinking that I was going to be the guy to write this book. And uh, Zondervan kind of came to me and said, hey, would you write a church planning book? And I said, OK, but I'm going to write something really different. Like, and they said, well, we have Center Church. That's a, a kind of like a urban ministry manifesto. But we kind of need like a, a church planning core book that's just like kind of like the flagship for, for church, our go-to. And I said, well, A, I don't think I'm the guy to write it. And they said, no, we think you are. And I said, well, I'm not capable of writing a textbook. Like, I'm not, I'm not an egghead. I don't have a PhD. And uh, they ended up just saying, look, we want you to write it. We want it to be a practitioner-based textbook. And then on top of that, um, yeah, write what you want. We don't care. So that was cool. That was a green light. But uh, I told him I wouldn't put as many Star Wars people in it. And uh, and everyone was happy. But 
it really was kind of like the book for us, man, for our tribe, for our people. And you know what I mean when I'm saying that? Like, like none, none of us here, and, and I couldn't be more honored than the two of you here in this conversation. Like, this is 100% right that it's us three talking about global practices and how that should inform us in church planning. Because the way that I approach this was three circles overlapping. This is the core of the book. The, the word plantology is a made up word. It literally means, because <laughs> that's what I do. Uh, <laughs> it literally means these three circles that overlap. The number one is scripture. Can I see this stuff in scripture? There's nothing new under the sun. Almost everything we think we're innovating and making up, it's already been done right? Multi-use buildings, um, Paul in Ephesus, you know, not, knock yourself out. Go, go try to find things that the apostles didn't somehow innovate in some way, shape, or form. Or Jesus, as strategic as he was, we often just think of him as a guy that walked around doing miracles, popping up a few comments and stories here and there. He was incredibly strategic. And I actually try to lay that, that out in the book and show Jesus a strategy and how Paul starts learning from him after he makes a few mistakes on his first missionary journey you can see him putting practices that jesus did into there so that's the first one is scripture second circle is what we're talking about today <clears throat> which is best global practices um, things that missionaries are finding today to be the way that they advance the kingdom of God, not plant churches, but advance the kingdom of God. And then, of course, if, if those two things are there, they're in scripture and it's what missionaries are finding today is actually the most uh, helpful way to advance the kingdom. Then the third circle it, it ought to be that we can go back, that's church history, it ought to be that we can go back through church history, comb through the pages of, of kingdom advancement, movements of the spirit, things like the Moravians and Wesley and all those, where the, the gospel really just kind of took flight. And we ought to be able to see an overlap. And so where those three overlap, we ought to be able to see those same principles. Where those three overlap, that's what I call a church plantology principle. I'm more concerned and, and hear me when I say this, it, at the beginning, I kind of say, I don't really give a rip about church planning. What I'm concerned about is these principles that are laid down in the New Testament are practiced throughout the world by people that are just literally leading movements and things that we saw when the spirit moved in church history. I'm more concerned about us maybe ripping the backbone out of what has been kind of the normative and replacing it with this. I, I, I think of it as kind of like the, the Terminator, right? You rip your spine out, you put the T2000 Terminator, he's unstoppable, he doesn't give up, he doesn't quit. This is what God put in place. So I'm more concerned about that being the core, maybe almost like a reformation of, of ministry and overhaul. Church planning will happen if that happens. So the, it's a bit of a Trojan horse, I suppose, this book. Well, so Brian, I want to come to you here in just a minute. I think there are two ways just to, I loved everything you just said there, Peyton, two ways to make sure that we don't kind of go down the road of, of pragmatism as it relates to like best practices. One, and use the language there several times, talk about global practices, because what's going on in the church around the world. But then a second, it was, I, I'm reminded of a question that you posed very early on in the book. And it's funny, I tweeted that question and I said it was from you. And it was just interesting, the um, very large amount of feedback or response I got to this. 
And I think this will speak really well. I think this, I mean, I've heard Brian say very similar things like this, but here's the question that you posed. You said, if you were not allowed to start a Sunday service, describe what your church would look like. And I think that question right there, uh, again, kind of helps us start in the right place as it relates to practices. So, so Brian, let, let me come to you. When you heard what uh, Peyton shared just there about uh, biblical practices, global practices, what are the things that you feel like uh, church planters, really missionaries need to, to think today uh, or, or hear about today as it relates to church planting? That, and I know course the underground was very influenced by global practices when you guys first started i know you just spent the last couple of years in ireland working with the sister network there so how, how would you kind of frame the best global practices to inform church planting that we even do here in the states today yeah there's a lot there's a lot of a lot of questions in there a lot of a lot of meaning uh i maybe maybe it's more like and Peyton will appreciate this maybe it's more like music you know or like a genre of music or it's more like art itself ministry the longer i do it feels more like art than science and the problem with with scientific management you know taylorism which which is where we get the word best practices uh, a guy called frederick taylor early 20th century um, you know, is that we're thinking of it as science. So it's about efficiency and we lose people in it and you can lose God in it. And, and actually if it's more like art, you know, if you think of it as, as, as a genre of music, like jazz or punk or something like that, then you don't copy people, right? You don't, you don't do exactly what someone else did, you know, but, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really into the history of punk right now. And, and, you know, you'd see in, 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 the Ramones and, and Blondie and, uh, you know, coming out of New York and then you have the clash and the sex pistols in England. And then you have the, the, you know, circle jerks and whatever in the, in the West coast scene. And, and nobody, no one, no one's saying, Oh, I like that song. Let me, let me do that exact piece of music or something, but it's a, it's a spirit. Right. And punk was just a, an attitude. And by the way, very, very much like do it yourself. Uh, figured out yourself you don't have to be good at music to to make punk music you know you just learn as you go and uh so yeah what are global practices what is the history of the church it's inspiration maybe for an iteration of the church in our time so it's not that we're to ignore it this is what i really like about Peyton's book and actually about the way he thinks is in one sense he's kind of a history nerd you know he's, he's sort of always bringing you back to the welsh revival or some some antiquated story you know but he's such a forward-thinking guy too so so the book is this weird beautiful kind of reconciliation of the past and the future you know that we look backwards not to copy you know there's that kind of possibility of primitive ecclesiology which i you know i'm tempted by too which is to say let's just look at the book of acts and let's do the exact same thing they did um, but I think maybe more to the point is you look at the book of Acts and you say, that's inspiring. Like, I want to make music like that. You know, I want to, I want to make music in that vein, in that genre. I want to do art, you know, impressionism or cubalism, whatever you look at it and you say, I want to make something that looks like that, but it isn't that right. It's, it's something from our time, from our place, our hearts, our people make sense in the now, the right now. 
but man, if you don't look back, if you don't look at global practices or you don't look at biblical practices, then what are you doing? I mean, it's really just an exercise in hubris. Um, you know, so how, so that that's what I feel like. It's more like art than it is like science. And if we think of it as art, then we we can definitely be inspired by each other. But you can't you can't plagiarize other people's music. You know, you can, in fact you'll get you'll get sued, won't you? I mean, if you if you just take a lick or something, or uh, you can you know, someone might say, well, that's that's our music, like that's proprietary. So you never would want to do the exact same thing. But when when something becomes a genre, like if you think of punk, what is punk? Like, what does it sound like even? It doesn't, it, it isn't anything. It's just fast and furious and not very good, probably, music. But it's something people make from their heart. It has angst in it. It's principled, right? So maybe that's what I would maybe bring to the conversation right now. It's instead of best practices, we're really talking about best principles, right? We're talking mm. about heuristics yeah. in Roger Martin's little funnel thing. We're talking right. about heuristics, not algorithms, not copying each other, but looking yeah. for rules of thumb. You know. I need to respond to that real quick. Thanks, Brian, because you, you absolutely nailed it. And I think we would all agree, right, that The Clash is just good music, <laughs> right? Maybe the best music. But moving <laughs> on from that, of course, um, <clears throat> It, it, it's so funny because I, I specifically um, wanted people to understand this is not methods. Methods are what you steal from others. Principles are things that are like the internal operating system of your iPhone. There's something behind something none of us really think about. It's just it's how it works. Um, and I don't mean that from a pragmatic uh, standpoint, but it's something that is behind the scenes, something that's making this beautiful thing on the outside, the science. And it's funny because I, I, you know, the, the textbook, I, I actually uh, gave him the idea of what I said. I want it to look like a chemistry textbook, right? Kind of tongue in cheek, like, you know, oh, here's high school plantology 101, you know, yada, yada. And then the principles are kind of like those periodic table of elements, right? Those are just there. The art is what you're going to mix together, you know? So the science is like, those are the principles, but the art is how you apply those principles on the ground to make something unique, to make something beautiful, to make something that, you know, and I, I remember speaking to, to Jeremy over at the underground once, and I, I was saying, hey, I, I, would, I feel a lot of synergy with the underground. And we were chatting through and I said, you know, thing is, is, is I, if I joined the underground or partnered with you guys in some way or, or came to learn under you, I wouldn't want to just take your model because for me in church planning, what's always led to some like breakthrough has been the struggle, the, the, the dirt, the blood, sweat and tears, <laughs> the I quit moments, I'm done, I'm toast and, and struggling almost like a pupa, right? Like to, 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 to be kind of cliche here where it becomes like a butterfly. And I think that is what we see both on the mission field globally is people just coming to the end of themselves and you know cross-cultural mission or maybe it's indigenous mission still people come to the end of themselves and and getting these breakthroughs and maybe going i've rediscovered these principles that i didn't know you know kind of like jacob surely god was here and i didn't know we we've all had those ministry breakthrough moments and that's that's kind of what I want people to discover. So let me ask you guys. I mean, I think this is a good distinction between principles and practices, uh, without a doubt. Um, you know, in the book, 
Peyton, you make a distinction between planting churches versus the way uh, kind of historically, at least in in uh, in the West, we've started churches. So just for both of you, what would how would you frame some of those key principles, two, three, four principles um, that uh, church planters that might be watching or listening to this right now? that they need to hear or you use the language Peyton of be reminded of kind of rediscover what, what are a handful of those principles to make sure again, to use your distinction, Peyton, that we're planting churches rather than the way you talked about in the book, starting churches. I mean, what are those key principles that we need to be reminded of today? So I've got like 10 of them and it's not that there's not more. In fact, there, I think other people could probably find more principles. Um, the, the 10 I came up with were, <laughs> <laughs> I won't give you all of them, but but some but, of them like share one or two and then let Brian yeah. and maybe myself kind of flesh that out just a little bit. Get, yeah, give so, us the top three or four. Yeah. So one of them was recovering uh, first century style ministry from church starting to church planning. So uh, church starting be where like you you find a, a, a flashy logo, you know, you get a sexy website, you rent a public space, you invite a bunch of people, you focus on a crowd and the church is the focus. Church planning. Wait, is the, wait we the, do that. No, never heard of that. No, nobody heard of people doing that. That's okay. Well, good because that would scare me if that's what we're doing. So So that that would be church starting, right? Like that's not even church planning. Like there's none of that in the New Testament. I'm, you know, you can say, oh, well, because we didn't have logos and websites and whatever. But I think the principles behind that, like you know, easily. Jesus could have been like, guys, it's all about good marketing. I mean, every chance Jesus had to get a crowd, he sent them home. Right. Like that's the first thing Jesus does. When he, hey, hey, wait, wait, this is getting out of hand. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Right. He drives the crowds away every chance he gets. Um, so there were principles that they could have easily adopted and marketed on. Um, but but that wasn't the principles that Jesus was spending three years trying to teach him. So church planting was all the stuff Jesus was doing. He disciples 12 people in front of him for three years. Um, he lets them do ministry. He equips them. Uh, you know, he, he, he sows the seeds of the gospel. He, he goes and he enters into the rhythms of, of the community in a, in a little town, a little podunk town like Galilee. Um, you know, the, there's so many things that church planting involves. But if you just boil down the Great Commission, you'd be like, well, that that that's kind of it, right? Make disciples, preach the gospel, go, go, you know, go to places you would normally go. And uh, all those things are, are part of church planting itself. And it's more of a slow burn, right, than than the big splash. And um, and we, we for some reason, we keep going for the big splash. Yeah. So, Brian, what would you how, just add to that, that first kind of principle Brian uh, Peyton's just introduced there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just would agree. I, I think what we start with is mission. Like what we actually start is a mission, not a church. So I think a church is a byproduct. There's just, I just don't see any impetus to planting or starting churches. I see a church as the thing that emerges from the soil of fruitful mission, you know, and actually Jesus is pretty clear when he sends out, you know, his little bands of missionary people in his name that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. You know, he he prepared them for failure or failure is not even the right word, right? He prepared them for rejection. And, and, and so going in with this idea that we won't be rejected, that it will work 100 out of 100 times uh, means that we're probably not doing it. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, 
overgeneralization, but you know, and then for me, if you start with missions, so you say, well, I'm actually going as a missionary. Well, that changes your mentality. That's very much Peyton's, you know, that's, that's part of Peyton's language. Even that, you know, you go in, not as a, not as a sort of a vocational pastor looking for a flock to lead, you know, uh, or, you know, looking like it's someone like I, I'm a professor. I'm looking for a college to teach in, you know, it's like that, that, that already exists. And I'm just going to go take my spot somewhere. Um, but instead you're a pioneer, you're, uh, you're breaking the ground. You're trying. And, and what you hope to see is people coming to faith and coming to Jesus. So you're the, the first fruit of a missionary church plant or the first fruit of, fruit of a missionary enterprise is people responding to the kingdom, right? Your peace resting on them and them saying, I want to hear more. I want to know more. And so that, that implies incarnation. It implies, you know, like actually being with people who don't know Jesus or who are far from God or, or whatever. And for me, the, the sort of three elements of mission. So if you say start with mission and churches emerge, the three elements of mission are very, they haven't really changed from that, that initial sending, which is kind of the charismatic work, like proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. The, 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 what I would call like dynamic work that the power, the dunamis, the, the, the work of power of unseating power, uh, the work of justice of confronting powers and principalities, the work of like, of like, you know, fixing what's wrong. Jesus was doing that, you know, and, and sent his people to cast out demons and confront the powers and principalities. And then the third is interesting. The word healing, you know, to go and heal the sick, that word healing is really therapos, right? It's, it's just making people better, feel better. Because <laughs> heal, all healing is temporary, right? And actually, when, when we're reading healing narratives, a lot of times it's just people came to Jesus and they left feeling better. It wasn't always a total healing, like in the sense of like, I had this condition and now it's gone. Uh, but that, that idea of like, I came to you and you made me better, that therapeutic circle. So if you think of those three commitments to mission is like the healing and wholeness of people, the confrontation of power and the work of that. And then, and then the proclamation of the message. Look, I can tell you right now, you, I can already see the church and the people of God being pulled apart into those three camps. And actually right. mission unifies those three things. And what we've done is we've said mission is just preaching or mission is just confrontation of power or mission is just healing and making people whole and making them, you know, better, feel better, whatever. And actually all three of those should be commitments we carry as missionary people. And, and, and the, the churches that emerge from that kind of tripartite commitment in terms of like mission done in those three spheres is a real like that's a that's a real church and and you're actually looking at like a transforming community uh, that now exists in a place that maybe wasn't there before and so suddenly you can see the the knock on effect of that like whereas if you just do the one thing or if you start with just like Peyton said you just sort of get a logo and a, and, and you you hang a sign and some Christians come well what have you really done I mean. Yeah, I really like that, Brian. I think, and again, I think you spoke to at least two of the principles that I think uh, Peyton fleshes out in the book. I just want to uh, uh, not reframe, but just kind of remind those that might be watching or listening to this. Uh, first, I love what you said about mission, that we really, we have reduced mission where we actually need a more robust view of mission that it involves all of those things. But instead, 
we just in the, especially in evangelical circles, we reduce mission down to one of those three things. So I think that's, that's a principle there is we need a, we, we need a more comprehensive or ro- robust perspective on mission. But then before that, I love what you said that we need to start with mission. You know, that when you said that, I'm always reminded of Alan Hirsch's phrase out of permanent revolution, where he says, mission is the mother of adaptive ecclesiology. And I know this is true of the underground that when those micro churches start with mission, the level of creativity and innovation is just like off the chart, right? There's just all these wild and wonderful expressions of church. And it's because they you started with mission rather than started with church. So there's just, you know, great variety there. And man, I, that was one of the things that really drew me to the underground when I first kind of learned about it many years ago was just the, the level of creativity, creativity or innovation with those micro churches. So, so Peyton, let me come back to you. Um, Cause I think, man, what Brian shared there, I I'm reminded of a couple other principles that you write about in the book. So uh, want to play off of that any, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many things, man. Brian said, let's start with mission. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I think that, again, uh, um, Paul really, I think the apostolic gifting, although, you know, any of the APAS functions can plant churches, you know, they could, they could lead a team in church planting. They could, you know, and it'll look different every, you know, which... The, the apostolic, they it like reality uh, planning. That's what I do. Uh, happy Star Wars Day, by the way, gentlemen. Oh, yeah. May the fourth I be with you. I figured that's why you brought that up. Yeah, <laughs> it would be remiss of me, and I would disappoint would anyone yeah. who knows me well if I did not do that. Uh, it was an easy grab, but um, <clears throat> I, I also think that when you really study Paul, Paul is really about the proclamation of Christ. I mean, he he. When he describes his own ministry more than anything else, he keeps talking about proclaiming Christ. And and there are different ways to do that. I mean, we all know that Paul actually did very little open-air preaching um, as much as we think, oh, that's what they did back then. They actually didn't. Um, Paul, Paul went in the synagogue and he had conversations and he reasoned. Um, he infiltrated the marketplace. He, he wasn't this George Whitfield guy out there all the time. Um, and he really, but he really wasn't in the business of planting churches. Planting churches is something that came cause and effect. It was a result of the hard work of sowing and watering and reaping that was going on. And Paul constantly uh, refers to it as farming. You need patience for that. It's a long haul. It's a it's a blood, sweat, and tears thing. And it's investing in one plot of ground over time. So so there's this whole idea. And I love where Brian said, you know, we start with mission because to me, like if you talk to the average church planner, um, there's a burden. There if if they're really gonna plant a church, and I think by now most of us can meet a planner, we can talk to them, and we could probably figure out whether or not they're going to make it just by talking to them. I know that sounds kind of arrogant, but I can kind of tell these days, you know, like you're going to make it or you're not going to make it probably by a conversation. I'm shocked sometimes, fair play, um, because I got everything wrong when I did it and I still do. So, I mean, maybe I'm saying all the wrong stuff, but, but by and large, you get a sense like this person's actually going after, you know, sowing Jesus into this community. 
right? He's going to lay a foundation like Paul, Christ, which no, no other, no one can lay any other foundation. Nothing else will stand. And so when you get that sense, normally you talk to a planner and they have this burden, you know, um, the, the burden changes with, with APES leadership. When you have a team that's made up of the APES leaders, all of their burdens change. So like if you talk to someone, you talk to the member of your team who's more prophetic, you say, what do you want to see? They're like, man, I want to see, I want people to walk in and feel God in the room. Like, you know, and they tend to gravitate towards like more Pentecostal, you know, uh, uh, movements. Um, when you talk to an apostle, an apostolic leader, they're like, man, I, I want, I want the, I would just want people to know Jesus. So, you know, and it's the glory. Paul constantly is talking about the glory of Jesus. The, you know, if, if Caesar was Lord in the empire, you know, then Jesus is Lord. You know, I, I quote, um, uh, N.T. Wright where he goes, Hey, we, we have to keep in mind that when Paul was doing this, he was reacting to something when he kept saying Jesus is Lord. Uh, if you took, took Paul, handcuffed him and said, you can't say that. He pointed Caesar, a statue of Caesar and say, well, he started it. You know, um, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So there was this, but there was a sense, what I call an eschatologic drive. All planners have a drive and it comes from a burden that God's wired them for. He's put in their heart. So their burden for their community, this community needs to have Christ's glory. They need to know who he is. That's more apostolic. Um, the prophetic, the, the evangelist, um, his is, uh, an evangelistic burden naturally, as you'd expect. The shepherd, uh, you talk to a shepherd, they're going to often and, and I know this is controversial. This is probably uh, going to be very controversial in the book. But I say that the missional movement actually was more of a shepherd movement. Um, it wasn't as much of an apostolic thing, although the, the apostolics probably helped catalyze it. Um, but but it was really people saying we, we want to uh, life on life. We want to, we want to talk. We want to discuss. We want to pray for one another. We want this intimacy. We want to celebrate the family of God. The shepherd, you know, that's, it's like a, a resurgence of the shepherding movement. And the apostolics come in and say, well, we're going to make this a missional community. Um, so I think what you see with the missional movement is what happens when you put an apostolic and shepherding burden together. It's like a mixology, right? That chemistry again. That's what you get. So, so some of those principles, um, really, well, one of the things I really angle for um, is that those burdens drive everything. I can't do a five-year business plan. I, I can't. I can't. I mean, the the burden is going to change based on who's with me, right? Um, as I'm on mission. So whatever my church looks like is going to come out of those apes burdens. It's gonna it's gonna be shaped by that. And getting away from this um, concept of this is the need of my community. This is what I need to do. This coming up with this almost, uh, we would say again, a practical approach, like a business strategy model for it. I'm not against strategy. In fact, I just think we've got to start with um, the with the reality of the spiritual gifts that God's put in our midst and let it be more gift driven than task or goal or, you know, a uh, little, little less whiteboard, a little bit more spirit and acting through organic flesh and blood. So Peyton, when you use the language of burden, I think that's very powerful. Uh, Brian, I wonder if you think about, I mean, I know you have done a good bit of work and, and passion around the concept of calling. Do you see a relationship there uh, when, when Peyton uses the language of burden and, and how calling fits into 
what what you guys have done at the underground for so many years yeah i actually i actually kind of like burden better uh in point of fact um <clears throat> you know shakespeare said romeo suffered love for juliet you know love love well maybe we should just say too that that in in the call of mission there must be love you know <clears throat> especially if you're gonna be critical of the place you're going you know it has to be from a place of love that what compels us is love <clears throat> what helps us to you know sustain that work over time will be love and love in its guts is suffering you know it's pain it's um you know, th this is how we know what love is, John said. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his friends. So love equals now because of Jesus' suffering. You know, that, that word passion, which I think is integral to the concept of maybe passion is the bridge, actually, between calling and burden. You know, the idea is that we, we feel deeply something, but we feel it so deeply that we would suffer for it, you know. Um, and... I guess in that in that regard, we do need planters that kind of feel like they can't do anything else. Like they must do this, and they must do it because of that that deep call of love and that willingness to go through hard times. I think I think right now it's a tough. I don't know what you guys think, but I think it's a tough time to be a leader uh, in kind of the world economy. <laughs> it's like leaders are going to be attacked, targeted, torn down, sometimes rightly so, because leaders are dumb and do dumb things, and we, we deserve it sometimes, and, uh, and also unfairly at, at times. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of like a purification maybe that's going on with, with apostolic work or enterprise. It's like, man, you don't, you don't just want to be a leader because you saw some people on a stage getting a lot of accolades and applause and you thought, I want that. I want, I want that. That's, that. That sounds like a better life, an easier life. You know, the, the call to plant, the call to break new ground, to go where, you know, in, in Paul's words, where Christ is not known not laying on another person's foundation. It is a hard work. It's a, it's a work of suffering, but it's also a work of love. And if you don't have that sense of calling, like God has sent me to do this. So it's like vertical. Like I'm, I, you know, Jürgen Moltmann said before Jesus dies for us, he dies for his father. You know, the, 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 the death on the cross is, is first a gift of love to his father. He dies because his father asked him to, you know, and also it is horizontal. It is for us. It is out of love for us, but make no mistake. He doesn't just die for us. He dies because his father wills it because, you know, Gethsemane says this, there is no other way, you know, drink this cup. Um, and I, I, I know Peyton, I think you would agree, but I, I feel like maybe the secret sauce of planting and the secret sauce of, of apostolic work that lasts or that does bear fruit is that willingness to pay the price, whatever the price is and whatever it looks like. And maybe we're going through a kind of purification season where, man, you just don't want to be a church planner and you just don't want to get into this business unless you mean it, you know, because <laughs> uh, it, it will cost you something. Yeah, yeah, that little progression there, Brian, I just want to remind, I mean, to talk about burden and maybe it, maybe it's the burden that leads to passion, but then the willingness then to suffer that, yeah, I think, uh, man, I think there's really something to that. 
Yeah, it's one of the things in the in in the book. The way that I kind of unpack it, um, and th- this is actually it's funny because you know how like Brian, like when you're or Brad, both all three of us are authors. You go back to your books and you look at the progression and you you see a thread. Like one of my threads all the way through is always gift activation. Of course, that's part of the apostolic calling, right? You're trying to activate others' gifts so you can get the heck out of Dodge or you're just, it's part of the apostolic mobilizer in you. So gifts are probably <clears throat> um, a, a pat, you know, uh, they're just the thread. And so in this book, the way I unpack it is again, recurring themes of, of, uh, what I call gift driven ministry. What I was iterating and what Brian's saying, I actually say that the way that if, if I'm planning and I have a group of people with me on mission, I, the first thing I want to do is find out what their gifts are. Because for me, if I have X amount of people with the gift of compassion and the gift of giving, gift of helps, whatever, I, I kind of know which direction mission's going to take. But if I have a, these other set of gifts in majority over here, I listen to that. And usually it's a few different directions. And so, Brian, with um, the micro church, it's the same thing, um, you know, where you're, you're letting people's gifts drive. But I, I don't do a spiritual gift survey because I think those are lame, right? <laughs> That sounds really dumb. But when I was in high school, they they literally, this is no joke. I, I took this, you know, the little Scantron in, in driver's ed. There was like the career center would send you these Scantrons and say, this is what you're going to do for a living. So one said I should go into healthcare. Well, hello, I need to graduate high school. So I took an ROP class, <laughs> you know, ended up becoming an RN. Who knew? But the other option on there, my top two things on this stupid survey were uh, second one was chicken farmer because it said I like to be alone. So <laughs> I may have been an excellent chicken farmer, but uh, because I like being alone. But, uh, you know, besides all the Napoleon Dynamite references, that would have been terrible. So uh, I don't always believe a survey is going to accurately figure out <laughs> who you are or what you do well. What so, survey are you taking that has chicken farmer? Right. It was in high know. school, public school system what? in California. Where did you go to school? Oh, California. Okay. <laughs> just California. be aware. It explains <laughs> it all. <laughs> There's so much farmer. to what you just said. Uh, but but the, the reality is what I like to do is I'll take newspapers and I'll flop them down on, uh, I'll get everybody in groups, put newspapers down. I'll say, I want you guys to read these newspapers. I'll have multiple newspapers, pass them around, um, circle in black, all the things in the city that are just things that Jesus cares about. And you know, they're gonna circle the whole paper, right? But it's all the things like all the broken parts of the city, this and that. And then I'll have a red Sharpie and I'll say, right, right. Okay, you've done that. Now I want you to circle the red in red. I want you to circle one or two that you, if you're going to do anything about like pick a fight with anything in the city, you know, go, go after anything. That's what you're going to do because that cannot be ignored. Once you get that red marker in their hand and they share, they stand up and they say, it's this. And then they start to share what what I'm looking for is what they're burdened for. And that's what I say is I'm looking for your burden because your burden 
leads to your passion. And like you said, Brian, passion means suffering. So this is what I lay out in the book. Burden leads to passion. Passion leads to gifting. So if you have a burden for something, that tells me what you're passionate about. Once I know what you're passionate about, and so they would stand up and I'd say, talk to me about that thing. Tears, tears, breaking their heart, hand on chest. Like, you know, there's they're unloading. There's this huge thing that you, when you're a leader, you're like, I can't ignore that right? Like these become sacred moments. And then I'm writing all of this down. And as I'm writing all of this down, again, this is the art of it. There's nowhere in this. This isn't the right way to do it. It's just the knuckleheaded way Peyton Jones came up with understanding the principles of gift-driven ministry. That, that might be the science. We're mobilizing people on their gifts. But the the art of it is just this newspaper thing. And and But what what happens is eventually... I'll start to write down what I think their gifts are based on that passion. I don't know yet that it's a giant experiment. I think your gifts might be this and I'll test that out with them as I lead them from that point on. I will place them in situations to see if that's the gifting that comes alive in them. And, and that's, that's how it works for me on the ground. Well, and Peyton, I like how you, talked about how different gifting will lean into those passions a little bit differently uh, depending on how we're gifted. And that relates well to a question that someone's asked. I want to throw out, and I'd like to throw it out to you, Brian, to start with, because I think this also, I think you, you could probably talk about. Brian's a master on this anyways. Well, right. And how microchurches are different depending on the giftedness of, of that microchurch leader. So let, let, let me ask you to kind of lead into that. Here's a question someone asked. It says, to, uh, is a non-apostolic leader able to plant mission where they are, or are they prone to be ineffective until an apostolic leader comes along and they join the, the apostle? So in other words, we talked about starting with mission. I hear what this person is asking, I think, is can that happen with someone that isn't gifted as more apostolically? And then how does that relate to different expressions of microchurches? Does that make sense? Yeah, and and I I think let's let's um, you know let's let's keep thing in their things in their proper perspective here. Gifts are gifts are an important um, ingredient in understanding how our calling is worked out and and where mission will work and where we have the kind of fortitude to stay the course. But all you need is Jesus. All you need is to be sent by Him. And don't get too tripped up by these categories or labels. Um, You know, I already feel like the question is revealing um, the limitation in a sense of those labels. So I would say, no, we can plant mission anywhere we're called to go. And either that means that something apostolic gets activated in you, or you meet someone on the road that has that, or the truth is, even within the question is an interesting question, because if you're not an apostolic person, you probably wouldn't go anywhere. You would start mission right where you are. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're an apostolic person, you probably will leave where you currently are and go somewhere new or somewhere you haven't been before, because that sort of uh, crossing the Rubicon, so to speak, is easier or easier for someone who has an apostolic gifting or an apostolic wiring. And so actually maybe there is also an answer to the question built into the question, which is if you don't feel a deep apostolic gifting, then do mission where you are. 
you know, start where you're already, where you are already planted, where you already have influence, where you already have credibility, authority, whatever, and be who you are, use who you are. And I don't, I don't personally think that we're limited by that. I think the pursuit of our lives is not to just play on one gift, but it's to come into the fullness of Christ Jesus. So like, I want to look more and more like him. Look, I'm not very pastoral. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that's a gift I have, uh, but I will tell you that, that one of the great pursuits of my life is to learn to do that better, to love people, to listen deeply, to, to luxuriate and give large amounts of time to just someone in need. So do you think because I'm not pastoral, I give up on that? No, not at all. In fact, I, you could argue I spend more time trying to be pastoral and compensate for that, which I think, I think is good. I think it's healthy. Maybe I won't see as much fruit in it as I do in apostolic stuff or prophetic stuff or whatever. But, um, but of course we chase that. Yeah, but and let me ask you though, Brian. But at the same time, I love everything you just said. But at the same time, too, recognition of that you is a good reminder that we need to be lit. Because I'm the same way. But I so it's a good reminder. It's not a a cop out. I mean, I have to work harder at it. But it's a good reminder to me that I need to make sure I'm listening to those that have more of a shepherding gift. I I have them alongside of me, or um, so it it does. I mean, or let me ask you: it does it not? emphasize the need of of team um yeah and and that has to be a principle too peyton like wouldn't we say that you just you simply don't plant things alone right. so so even even that we we would have to put that as one of the key principles of planting and starting anything which is you don't go alone yeah there's actually three chapters i was just thinking this is this is an apex church planning book and um even even the editor at a certain point, um, it's funny because people out there right now giving feedback are like, man, I love how much time you're spending on unpacking the APAS. But the the academic editor that was on was like, hey, man, this seems like it's a little bit overblown. Like there's too much of this APAS stuff. <laughs> so for me, it was like, well, you know, I, we just got to make sure we get this right. Um, this has to be part of the core of it. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, I think apostolic, uh, leaders are always in danger. I know this is a tendency in me, um, to always, um, be at risk for thinking we're the rock stars. Um, you know, like we're the cool ones. Um, like, like if Brian's talking about music, I automatically, when he said punk, something lit up in me. So I think punk is hands down the coolest music in the world, maybe only rivaled by jazz, but, uh, <laughs> but, but the, the rad thing is, is that, you know, you gotta have pop too, and you gotta have all these other expressions and that's all it is. It's all music. Um, but you, you have, you know, you have these different things that you kind of need. Like if I only listen to punk my life would suck. <laughs> you know, it's like, that would be terrible if there's only one type of music. And so I'm always hearing the punk music as an apostolic. But if I go around acting like I'm the cool kid, then other people are starting to feel their gifts are less than. And I've been, I've been rebuked before. I have people take me aside and say, hey, you know, uh, I actually see this in you that you, you think, and, and I, it was a wake up call. Like, yeah, you're right. I'm actually kind of dissing the other roles a bit. And they need to knock that off because for me, like as an apostolic, my big blind spot, and I'll unpack this in the book is shepherds. 
You know, kind of like Brian said, they balance each other out big time. Every harebrained crazy idea where I'm like, we're going to go to a gas station, this drive-by uh, shooting corner. I'm like, we're going to have a, uh, a gas station there. We're going to buy this thing. And then we're going to we're gonna meet in the open air there in this rough neighborhood. And somebody, the shepherd, of course, goes, what about the kids? You cool with that? Having kids get hit by bullets? Oh, I thought of that. There's a There's a grease monkey pit. That's where the Sunday school is. And shepherds are always holding me back going, no, 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 Peyton. No, no, no. Um, at the Trucker Stop Church that we're going to do in Wales, they, they, they were I would Burger King ball pit. Hey, I got it all sorted out with the kids. I never see what the shepherds see. It's always a shepherd who holds me back. But I'm always pushing the shepherd out of the hobbit hole. And so, you know, it's like the prophetic and the teacher are always counterbalancing each other. And I, and I have a little more charismatic view of the prophet maybe than, than currently is, is talked about in APES circles. Um, I believe that prophets have the social justice side. I believe all that's in them. Um, the, the disruptor, I believe all that. However, I also see them as more of the charismatic leaders. So, you know, they, they, they take off and go towards Bethel and other places, but they need teachers. <laughs> so if you had like a, a bill, you know, I don't slag off the, 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 the prophetic movements and say, oh, a bunch of heretics. They get stuff wrong. But, you know, the, at their extreme, they do. But at the extreme over here, I'm not going to name names because this is an exponential podcast. I'll, I'll get in all kinds of trouble for exponential. I don't want to cause trouble for them. I'm used to being in trouble, but I don't want to cause trouble for them. But I could think of names right now of people that are uber, uber, if you want to use the term right wing teacher movements that say and do all kinds of stupid things. And they're like the drunk uh, uncles at the party too that are causing problems. These two dudes needed each other, right? To come more into the middle, to balance each other out. And so when I look at all these, when when I see now, and this is kind of as I'm getting older, hopefully I'm mellowing out a bit. I'm starting to feel like when I say I'm apostolic, it's a confession of weakness. It's a confession that what I've just confessed, I'm not saying I'm cool or I'm the rock star. Um, what I'm saying, and this is kind of in uh, answer to the question, what I'm saying is I am blind to four other things. I'm really blind on one of them, but the others I'm confessing weakness and blindness to four other functions that are a part of Jesus's ministry. And I need these other four. It's not saying I'm apostolic, I'm all that. It's saying I'm not these others. And I think that's more the stance in my heart that I'm taking these days, if that makes sense. So, Brian, anything you want to play off of there? I just saw, um, or I just listened to a memoir from Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day. And he said, like, still to this day, if someone calls him a rock star, he wants to fight him. <laughs> Because in punk music, it's a sellout. You're a sellout. Or you know, if, if you're, you're a rock star, I'm a rock star. You know, it's it's so grassroots, and <clears throat> we still have a bit of that. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with all that's being said. I, you know, it's teams. It's it's equilibrium. It's it's needing each other. You know, it's seeing the fullness of the face of Jesus in the face of each other in the way that we reflect something differently about Him. I don't think it's just even contained by apest i think it's even deeper than that even more complex more mosaic you know but i would say this i would say that apostolic i think i i don't fully agree that apostolic is separate from all these other giftings i think everyone is apostolic now that may not be the the driving 
you know, impetus in a person, but I think everyone is sent. Everyone is. So whether you might be pastoral, you might be a teacher, but there, there has, there's still an apostolic. I mean, look, the disciples become apostles, whatever that maturation, whatever that, that all disciples are meant to become apostles. Maybe not in the gifting, the way we're talking about the fivefold, but all disciples mature into apostles. It's my opinion. That's 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 how I see. No, I'm, that's how I read. I'm actually in agreement. With yeah. You, so Brian. so like yeah. you 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 say yes to Jesus. You come to follow him, and he and from day one he says, actually, what I'm planning to do with you is to make you fishers of men. You know, actually, the 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 end game. You do, you want to be near me, but the actually the end game is to send you away from me. It's to send you out into those who who I also love as much as I love you. And that that sort of in and out that you know I think it was James Houston who said you know that the, our relationship with God is like a dance, in that there's a, there's a there's a there's presence and then there's absence. There's a coming in and a going out. And I think the apostolic the transformation of a disciple to an apostle, or a disciple a learner to a missionary, is fundamental to our to our growth as people. I, I think we all have to hit a point where maybe I'm a shepherd but I become a sent shepherd, you know, for, for, for the sake of the kingdom. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a, you know, a teacher, but I'm at some point I have to be a sent teacher. Yeah. I, I would, I would say on this, the, the, if you think of it, Christ is being formed in each of us, right? That's, that's what, that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians four. And he is speaking corporately, but if all of these things, these five apes functions were a piece of Jesus and Christ is being formed in me, that's why I need these five functions to pull me into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So I agree. And yet, I think as we mature, we still come out like with Alan's circles. We still come out with one that is bigger than the, than the, than the rest simply because our gifting not all of us have the same gifts. And so the gifts, again, determine which of those is going to be my my flavor, <laughs> my flavor, flav, what, whatever it is that that's was, you know, maybe I got the big clock or, you know, whatever it is hanging around. My, that's my gift. And that's that's determined by my, you know, or, or that's my function. That's determined by my unique gift sets. But I do believe that all of us, when we're discipled rightly, Christ being formed, we begin to take on more of those five. Otherwise, like you'd be like, oh, Shepherd, you got nothing to say to me. <laughs> you know, Evangelist, you got nothing. To, no, I need all of those pulling out of me, Jesus, because that's what Jesus looks like in me. He looks like a shepherd when that part of me matures. He looks like an evangelist. When And, and we don't like to be pulled on by the ones that aren't like us. That's why we need them more. Yeah, and I like your language of flavor or almost like default. I do think we most of us will kind of default or lean, but I also really like what you said, Brian, about the, the reality is we, we all need to see ourselves as sent, that we're sent into our workplaces, we're sent into the places that we live, we, we've, we're sent into social spaces that, you know, sometimes it, just recently I had a conversation with someone about the language of missionary. And of course, missionary has that language has baggage and no doubt about it. But the point I wanted to make, because they wanted to, they, they asked me, well, but everyone's not called to be a missionary. And it's funny, I, I kind of went back to what you said there just now. I said, well, again, because of the language of missionary, I kind of feel like that language for the most part probably needs to be like in-house language, you know, but we're all sent. I mean, we, we just can't 
let anyone off the hook that they live where they live for a purpose. They work where they work for a purpose. They hang out in social spaces. They hang out for a purpose. So, yeah, I think that language of sentness versus missionary uh, is that's probably helpful. And to realize that, yeah, on, on some level we are, if we're following Jesus into mission on some level, we're all called to be apostolic. So I like that. So we have just a couple of minutes, any, either one of you, uh, something that feel like, Hey, I wish I, I would have said this. We've got two or three minutes here just to kind of wrap this particular webinar up. Go Brian. I mean, I just, I just really like, Peyton's um, love of history. You know, I, I think I'm, you know, as a, as a f it, it just feels like a dichotomy. You know, you either care about the history and then you're like, you know, totally irrelevant to futurism uh, or you're, or you're sort of, you're thinking forward and you just are blind to that. Uh, I read it. I read a study recently it is I think 2014 Cambridge study is longitudinal, so it was long, it was seven years, I think covering seven years, 221 firms, companies, over 19 industries. So it's a big, big study. They were looking at something they called temporal focus, like the CEO's temporal focus. That is to say, whether they were they were using the language in their leadership of the past, the present, or the future. And they said, you know, <clears throat> basically people in, in conservative environments, like non-changing environments, if they if they just looked at the past and the present, they did well. They were they were measuring innovation, new product development. But the people in in changing, like dynamic, tumultuous, chaotic environments, the people that had a future orientation and present, they succeeded. They did better, uh, which makes sense, you know. But I think for us, I th so so in my my bias is like we have to have a future orientation because we live in times that are always changing. So if we if we if we if we root our practice too much in the past, we will fail into the future. You know, but something Peyton does, which I think is maybe maybe more to the point, is like striking this this sort of um, it's not a balance, is it? It's a it's a it's a recipe. You know, it's a it's a flavor. Uh, that, that we have to remember our roots. We have to remember these stories of innovation, actually, because all of all, our, our missionary impulse is, is, has been worked out in every generation in innovative, creative, interesting, brave ways. And, and we ought to look back at those, not to copy them, not to immortalize them or, or even sacralize them, but to be inspired and to remember our future. We're actually supposed to do what they did. So if, if you're Methodist and you like John Wesley, you're not meant to get on a horse and go, and go, you know, galloping around your city and preaching, although that would be interesting and people might definitely show up for that. But, but you're meant to figure out what is your horse and, and what, how do you break down the walls of access, which he did, you know? And, and to remember him is to do something brand new, is to do something totally fresh. This is something I just think Peyton's book does, I think he does as a person, is the kind of bringing together of those two worlds in a way that's creative and freeing. And so I really appreciate that about you, dude. And, and obviously the work, the, the book itself uh, is, a, is a real accomplishment and it's a real gift because it's so deeply scriptural it also really honors and pays a lot of attention to our innovative history and yet it's pushing us forward. Yeah. Thanks brother. I appreciate that. That's a great really summary. Good. Well, 
if you haven't seen it, here's a copy of the book, Church Plantology, The Art and Science of Church Planting. Um, we're out of time. Appreciate. Thanks for uh, carving out the time, Brian. It's always great to hear from you. Good to see you again today as well, Peyton. So um, thanks. that's it. We're out of time. So until next time. Nice. Nice May the force be with you. <laughs>